You are listening to the Emu Podcast. Up now, tuning our heartstrings, the power of music in learning to love God. A talk by Michael Jensen. Um, before I start, I just want to do two things, well, the same thing, meaning two things. That is, I want to recommend a book and also declare that I've pinched some of the ideas from it, okay? It's just to be upfront. But I really want you to read this book. I think this is a fantastic book. It's called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love by a man called James K.A. Smith. James K.A. Smith, You Are What You Love. The Spiritual Power of Habit. And he's got a lot to say for pastors, for music directors, for people who shape what goes on in church gatherings and for regular Christians. You are what you love, the spiritual power of habit. I think it's fantastic. So that's also declaring that I've pinched some of his ideas. But firstly, uh, if you turn to the outline that I've uh, provided there, we're going to begin by, by stating that to be human is to love. At the beginning of this year, one of the members of my church, a person who'd been on parish council, a woman of only 59 years of age, was dying of cancer. It became pretty evident that she was in her last weeks. And so I went to visit Angela, lying in her hospital bed. I hadn't seen her for a few weeks, but I was just shocked by the way in which uh, her physical state had degraded, how she was really now facing her last days. Her daughters were there in the room, and it was quite clear that the, the end of her earthly life was in sight. Her, lung, her youngest daughter, Lucy, is a member of our church choir, and she had her hymn book there and was singing to her mother. That's what she did in the last week of her life. She sang to her mother, and I was there, and her mother was faintly singing along, and we sang together. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, evermore his praises sing. And then we sang, Love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down, fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. What made it so that these words and tunes brought the comfort of Jesus Christ into that hospital room, to those terrible days of parting. What made it so? Why did this music work? I want to return to that question, but before I do, let's open up once again Paul's letter to the Philippians. I hope you have it in front of you. And particularly I want to go to that very emotional very heartfelt opening to a letter where he longs for them with the affection of Christ Jesus to verse 9 through to 11 and hear what he's got to say in that great prayer. What does he pray for the Philippians? What does he pray for this group of Christians that he loves so much, that he longs for with the affections of Christ? He says, this is my prayer, that your love, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise 
of God. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. I want you to notice something about this prayer. It's a great thing for us to know more about God revealed to us in Christ Jesus and for us to be able to discern what is best, the best, to develop a taste for the world that is to come, like developing a taste for great coffee or fine wine, to develop a taste, a longing, a desire for the things that are to come. He wants us to be inflamed with desire for that day, for the day of Christ, so that we will want what God wants. But where does it come from? What is the path to this depth of insight? It is love. Now, we think we need to know in order to love. But Paul wants us to love so that we will know. He wants us to love so that we will now. Now, now I know that we like to believe that we human beings are primarily thinking things. All the rhetorical experts say that it's great to start your talk with some, with some statistics because it flatters the audience who all think they are thinky things. We all think we're brains, and so, hmm, yes, well, that sounds factual, right? It's a great way into our hearts, actually. It's a great way to get us. But we're actually not primarily thinking things. We think like that because we want to be different from our cats, right? We want to be different from our pets. And surely it's your power of thought that makes you that. We think that if we put enough information into people's heads we'll get the right outcome. Well, that's how a computer works, after all, and computers run our world. Put the data in, you get the output out. You put the right data in, well, you get the right outputs out. If you want to change what a computer does, it's not really hard, is it? You put different information in. But you, unless there are a few androids here, and if you are, could you please raise your hand now? And uh, don't, don't have any water to drink because you're rust. But if you're not a computer, right, you're not that. We don't work like that. We aren't simply minds. We aren't simply information banks. We are hearts and minds. And there's a very strong connection between the heart and the mind. In the Bible's view, we are lovers. We are actually made for love. We are made for loving relationships with each other, with human beings, and most especially with God himself, which is why, of course, Jesus the two great commands, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the essence of human life, to love. You're made for that. You're made to be a heart. It's what drives us and persuades us and motivates us, not information but love. It's how relationships work. What starts us on the quest to know something or someone is a desire for that thing. Now, my son Simon, who's just started at university this year, he loves Japan and the Japanese and Japanese language and culture. He absolutely loves it. He's extremely motivated to learn the language. In fact, while he was supposed to be doing the HSC, he wasn't doing Japanese, but I discovered that he learned Japanese while he was supposed to be doing boring things like, to him, physics and music and stuff. He actually learnt Japanese instead. 
And so he chose to do that at uni, even though it wasn't part of his school studies. It was something he discovered independently on his own, and he simply just enjoys it. I don't have to go in and nag him to do his uni work. He's fallen in love with Japan. He's even doing a course on manga, would you believe? Macquarie University, right? He's doing a course on manga. The more he learns about it, the more his love gets deeper. And he cooks us Japanese food. Our cupboard is filled with Japanese ingredients. He wears a yukata, and I have to stop him from wearing the sandals and the yukata down to the shops. <laughs> he does wear it around the house. It's rather kind of fetching. Now, this is like a picture, believe it or not, of the Christian life. We are creatures made for the love of God from the beginning. Now we're saved, our call is to a deeper love of God. Not simply to know about Him, but to know Him. We're called to know Him so that our love for Him will burst into full flame. God has shown His great love for us by pursuing us in Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, we begin to pursue Him. This is the thought we get in 1 John chapter 4. You know that great passage about love. We are called to love God and to love one another because God's love has been shown to us in the cross of Christ Jesus. But here lies the trouble. Here's the problem. Because we are loving creatures made for love, our hearts are easily captivated by alternatives to God. There are other things in the world around us that call to our hearts. There are other kingdoms than the kingdom of God, and they want us to dream for them. They want us to have in our, in our kind of daydreaming moments pictures of what they offer on their minds. And they do a great job at calling to us. The songs and rituals and cathedrals of these other loves surround us all the time. I do think that if a foreign culture or maybe even the aliens arrive in a few centuries time and they look at the debris of Sydney, the buildings that they will discover are the shopping malls, right? Those great cathedrals of consumption, those great attempts to seduce us into buying more and more stuff. They sing songs to our souls in order to persuade us to buy stuff. In fact, we have a whole industry dedicated to capturing our hearts. It's called the advertising industry. They're dedicated to preaching dreams to us. The gospel of consumerism is preached to us without exaggeration all the time. All the time. The president of the marketing firm, Yankelvich, Jay Walker-Smith, says that we have gone to being exposed to perhaps 500 ads a day in the 1970s, to being exposed to something more like 5,000 ads a day. If you think about that, that's probably right. That's 5,000 attempts to seduce you, to go for your heart per day, on your Facebook feed. If you're a middle-aged guy, it's always Russian brides for some reason. In your Twitter account, have I said too much? on the bus shelter, on your phone, in your inbox. I just got an email from Emu, for instance, right? <laughs> on every website you look at, and even when you, you just think you're going to turn off and watch a cat video on YouTube, you get ads. How do they do it? They're relentless, but how do they do it? I always like to think of the example of Qantas. A while back, Qantas was getting into trouble because of some bad press 
And when an airline has bad press, that really is bad press. Because who wants to get on an airline where employees are disgruntled? You know, and may not tighten the nuts tight enough what it is, because they're feeling a bit grumpy that day. I don't want to go on that airline. Thank you very much. So Qantas, what did they do? Did they issue statements of facts? Did they remind us that they'd never had a crash since 1920-whatever-it-is when they started, that they have the best safety record in the world? Did they put a statement on the public record? Well, they may have. I don't know. But that's not what they really did. They appealed. What they did successfully is appealed to our hearts. And they had a campaign called the Feels Like Home campaign. Now, I don't know about you, but don't you think it's a little weird that an airline that really should want us to get on a plane and go somewhere else has a campaign called Feels Like Home. If home is so good, then why don't I just stay here? <laughs> but see, the longing for home is one of the most powerful desires of the human heart. It reminds us of parental love and soup and sleeping in and Boxing Day test matches. It's about security, isn't it? And it goes without saying, Notice how prominent music is in getting us to love things. Qantas's old ad, of course. I mean, is the tune going through your head? Yeah, it is. I still call, come on, Australia home. That's power, isn't it? That's the power. Speaking to your heart, is it logical? Not really. But man, it's powerful. Speaking to your heart, because that's what we are. We're not just brains, we are bodies. And music has that, has that way of getting into not just our brains, but into our very beings. Attach a longing to music, and it's very powerful indeed. That's why we have national anthems. We've just seen the Olympics with the national anthems. And how your chest swells with pride when you sing your national anthem, or it should. Now think about this for a minute. I'm on point three right now. What can we do to teach ourselves to love rightly? The people who come to your church, including you, have been swimming in a very deep sea of messages aimed at their longings. They've been, we've been, attending the church of consumption and materialism and nationalism and quite a lot of other isms for basically the other 143 hours of the week, and I include the, the times when you're sleeping because you wake up and you look at your phone and you get advertised to even then, at least that's me. We have one hour, or if your minister speaks far too long, an hour and a half to enter into a different dream, to have something else happen to our hearts, to open your heart and their heart to the very thing it's actually made to long for. This is the dream that Paul wants the Philippians to be delving into, a longing for a deeper knowledge of God, a knowledge so deep that it will make them dream not of a, a tropical island holiday, not of a better pair of shoes, not of the best hamburger that money can buy and you can find, but it's heaven. So what can we do? You've got one hour a week. What can we do to teach ourselves and others to love rightly? What can we do to, to act as an antidote? We have to become, you have to become curators of the heart. You have to become a curator of the heart. And what does that mean? What's a curator? Well, you know, you have a curator in an art gallery or a museum or in a garden. 
Let's go with the garden. The curator, the curator of the garden cultivates the plants in her care. She provides the conditions in which they are to grow. She protects them from pests. She keeps them secure. She makes sure they have the best quality soil and water and sunlight and that the weeds are removed. That's what we need to be for our hearts and for the hearts of those we are ministering to. And how do we do that? How do you become a curator of human hearts? Well, we need to know not just the facts about God's kingdom. We need to long for it. We need to dream about it. We need to long for it. There are three realities about God that we need to shape us. Three realities that will speak to our hearts. The first one is this. We need to know not, not just that God created the heavens and the earth. We need to feel the reality of God's power, His sovereign majesty in creation in our very bones and experience the feeling of awe. Professor Brian Cox he does these documentaries about the created world. And he expresses the kind of awe that Christians ought to, ought to express all the time at the majesty and size and beauty of the created world. Knowing the one who made it. Second, so first of all, awe at the creation. Second of all, we don't need a list, another list of technical theological terms for the atonement rattled off. We need to come to the foot of the cross in tears and leave in joyful relief so that we know the depths of our need before God and the surpassing measure of his love, the extraordinary, profound beauty of his love in Christ Jesus on the cross. That's second. Third, we need to feel what it is to yearn for the return of Jesus Christ. Paul talked about that in his prayer for the Philippians, didn't he? The day of Jesus Christ. We need to yearn for the new heavens and the new earth. Our true home. To hope, in other words. To hope. Creation, then. Or at creation. The cross. The overwhelming feeling of Thankfulness that it is to come to the foot of the cross in our great need and find there mercy and grace and forgiveness. And thirdly, hope, the final hope. Now, one of the greatest ever Christian songs moves through this pattern. I have to say, I went and looked it up on YouTube and to my horror, Elvis sings it. And it's really cheesy when Elvis... So I'm not going to attempt that. But you know this song. Oh, Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder... Consider all the world thy hand hath made. Then sings my soul, etc., etc. Gee, I started that in the wrong key, didn't I? What does it do, that first verse? What does it tell us about? Creation. In fact, he's got a second verse about the forests and the glades, which feels a bit funny in Australia, really. Forests and glades. Wimps. It's the vastness of creation. And then the response how great thou art. Then, where does he take us next in verse 3? And when I think, what? Of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. Once again, it's sort of speechless, isn't it? I'm rendered speechless. 
How great thou art, God, that you've sent Christ to die for me. And then third, the last, the last verse. Can you remember? When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Okay, he's turned us to the future, to our hope. So we've got awe, we've got thanks, we've got hope. All in one song. You don't, not every song has to do that, but what a piece of genius that song is. This song is a great example of heart curation. It draws our attention to the most important realities that a human being can know and generates for us feelings of awe, humility, thankfulness, love, and hope. So how do we play music for lovers? Now, this idea of heart curation is not just for musicians. It should be for pastors and all of those who have something to do with designing church services. One of my great heroes, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, is a master of this. When he designed the Anglican liturgy, you go through, and if you notice how often he talks about the heart, and how often he asks us to both humble ourselves before the majesty of God, but then raises us up into the heavens and teaches us to long all there in his construction of the church service as, as people of God gather. It's a powerful antidote to the, the lures of the world, the way it speaks to our heart. Now, so that's for all, all, uh, all people who have something to do with church services. But music, especially, has a fantastic and vital role to play in the curating of our hearts to love God. Music is a great gift of God that gets things into our bones so that they stay there even when those bones are riddled with cancer. Singing the truth means that the truth becomes something that we long for. So what can you do as church musicians to cultivate the heart, to curate the hearts? The first thing you can do is be selective about the songs you choose to sing in church. Be selective about the songs you choose to sing. That doesn't sound too hard. However, I want to raise our game on this. I want to put you under a bit of pressure here and say that not good enough is not good enough. No pressure, but we've only got four songs. Do you do, does everyone do about, about four, isn't it? Anyone do five a week? Lucky you. You've got maybe four songs, maybe five, in which to have our hearts moved so that we long for heaven and not for ice cream or sexy shoes or health insurance. Because the rest of the week, that's what's going to be speaking to my heart. Raise your standards. There's no time. We have no time to waste we have no time for songs that are either lyrically or musically flat. We've got no time for banality. We've got no time for mindless repetition. We don't want songs that don't take us anywhere. We don't want songs that are worthy but dull. We haven't got time. This time is precious. They've only got this one little window a week. For the most important desire in a human being's life. So speak to it. We don't want songs that are epic in scope but say nothing. We don't want songs that are actually incoherent. When you look at the words, 
You can't work out where the punctuation goes because it's just a string of kind of cliches put together. We haven't got time for that kind of rubbish. Let me put it bluntly. We need songs that we can sing on our deathbeds. Are the songs you sing good enough for that, to meet that standard, the deathbed standard, do they pass the deathbed test? Be ruthless. Go to your music folder this afternoon when you get home and cut out the dross. Please, I'm begging you. We need songs that meet us in our real-world experience of life and transport us through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ into a real and felt experience of the love of God that is for us in Christ Jesus. What about this? Riches I heed not, nor the world's empty praise. Bow mine inheritance, I started too high. (laughs) Now and always... Be thou my vision, it says. Right? That's an extraordinary, powerful song that goes back 1,500 years. This ancient hymn takes us from the lure of possessions and acclamation. Riches, I heed not. You know, people have been enticed by riches all day, every day. And you're saying here, riches I heed not. Fantastic. And nor man's empty praise, nor the world's empty praise. You know, that's what we live for as a claim, isn't it? No. Here, this one hour a week, I stand to sing that, no, I don't heed those things. God's my inheritance now. Now, my vision is for God. It's a brilliant move. Take one emu song. Notice how Rob Smith's Undivided explicitly does what I am saying here. I'm not going to sing this time. Give me an undivided heart for all that you desire. Could have come from Philippians chapter 1. We're actually addressed as hearts that need to long for what God is longing for. Or another that Simone and Philip did. I take comfort in the hope of the thief upon the cross, for I'm worthy of as little love as he. Which takes us, it it names our discomfort, doesn't it? It names the problem of our sin, reminds us of that prickly issue, and then takes us to the cross. And then turns us to our hope. For there's a grace awaiting me. So that's the first thing. Be selective. The second is, this isn't complicated, right? Be selective. Practice is the second one. In fact, this has already been said, hasn't it? Mike Begbie said, skills, right? Take care about how you play. Practice, rehearse, and play well because the stakes are this high. This isn't a trivial matter. We're trying to provide music for people to die to. Right? So the stakes are high. So if you, have to get, if you have to get off the beach and come to church half an hour early to practice a bit, oh, it's worth it. It's really worth it. We need to, we're tuning the heartstrings of the people of God and tuning them to the key of heaven by your playing. That extra session, that extra half hour of rehearsal time, it will show. Don't underestimate the influence of what you can do, musically speaking, to cultivate in people the love of God. How could you, think now, how could you take the music in your church to the next level? By improving your own playing, invest in some lessons for yourself so that you can serve the people of God better. And also, how can you help other musicians to develop their playing? And do you have any say in church budgets? Are the musicians well supported 
by the budgets? Do we actually have instruments that work and don't buzz? Stuff that doesn't mess up. You know, overheads that actually match the words. I used to say, you know you're in a Sydney... This is for Anglicans. You know you're in a Sydney Anglican church when the words on the screen don't match the words we're supposed to be singing. (laughs) Could we stop that? You know? Could perhaps the guy on the sound desk and the music, you know, the, the kind of button-pushing person, the PowerPoint person, could they be part of the rehearsal, maybe? Now, I don't want to be misheard as, here as advocating some kind of emotionalism. You know when a person is in love with the idea of being in love and not really the person themselves. They're really infatuated and they actually forget the object of their love in the whole process, don't they? They can't really say anything about the other person because they're really in this fog of emotion. They're just enjoying the emotion for its own sake, not because it actually connects them with the object of their infatuation. In fact, infatuation, think about that time when you were infatuated in case you're getting smug here, because everyone has, is really a kind of narcissism because it's really all about me and my affection and not really about the other person at all. And there are songs that I hear that would do this for God. There are are songs that are just repeated statements of emotion which feel artificial. They tell us, you know, I feel this, I feel this, I feel this, I feel this. They don't actually show us a vision of the world to come. They just tell us what it is to feel. A bit like a comedian not saying anything funny, just telling us to laugh. I was hoping that to get a laugh. <laughs> well, that did. Uh, real profound love for God won't come from telling us, telling e- from us telling each other how much we love God. It will come from turning our gaze lovingly to Him. So, to return to my opening question, why were we able to comfort Angela by singing to her and with her in her hour of need, in her darkest hour? First. Because the songs that she had learnt by heart were powerful enough to curate her heart, to school her heart, to nurture it with longings for God himself. That is, these songs were good enough. But secondly, we'd sung them enough that they'd become part of her. They weren't just songs. They were precious reminders of her salvation in Jesus and of her hope for heaven, for the new heaven and the new earth. That's what your ministry to the people of God should be playing for. Amen.